My name is Era, and I'm the host of the Tamil Creator Podcast. I chat with creators from all over the world to share their stories and discuss hot topics in a way that I hope inspires, educates, and entertains you. All right. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Tamil Creator. I'm your host. Today, I have um, a guest by the name of Vanessa Rakol Raponi. Did I get that right? Close. Vanessa Raquel Raponi. <laughs> oh, man. I'm so bad. But <laughs> she said her name. She nailed it. Um, she is an engineer by trade. Uh, she's currently a product development engineer at Spinmaster. Um, for those of you who don't know that don't know, it's a Canadian-founded international toy company. So brands like Paw Patrol, Hatchimals. Um, and she's also the founder of Engineers Canada. Did I get that right? Yes, that one yes. was great. <laughs> a, no, a national nonprofit that advocates for intersectional queer inclusion in the engineering profession. And she's also a survivor who's overcome mental illness. So Vanessa, thank you for making time. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. Well, I mean, why don't we start at the beginning? Yeah, tell us a bit about, you know, your upbringing especially since like you came from a, a mixed family where mm-hmm. um, one side was Tamil, one side was Italian. Just tell us about that and, you know, how your childhood or your formative like, teenage years really um, played a part in you eventually becoming an engineer. Totally. Uh, yeah, so I'm a born and bred Torontonian. I've uh, lived in Canada for most of my life with a couple minor exceptions of some travel I've done. Um so, yeah, my mom's side is the Sri Lankan Tamil side, and my dad's side is the Italian side. So growing up in Toronto with a Sri Lankan mom and an Italian dad, you're kind of used to diversity left, right, and center, essentially. Um, there was just a lot of variety in my life. There was a lot of, you know, I was a flower girl at a, a gay wedding when I was eight. Like there was just, you know, there, there, there's just this level of like, oh, very, very heavy multiculturalism in my day to day life, with maybe the exception of the neighborhood I lived in, uh, which was uh, an area called Leaside in Toronto, which is a very, very white, wealthy neighborhood. Um, so I was definitely, you know, within the context growing up of like my day to day in school. I was one of a handful of people of color in my whole school. So even though I'm half Italian, as a kid, I was a bit darker skin, you know, spending lots of time in the sun. Um, and within the context of that very white neighborhood, I was clearly like the weird brown poor kid. Um, so that was definitely really uh, influential in my, in my growing up experience. Interestingly, as I got older, that wasn't always the case. But um, in growing up, though, was also there were a lot of challenges. Like it wasn't it wasn't always necessarily race based of some of that stuff I experienced at school. But the fact that you know my family just didn't have a lot of money, so we were uh, we lived in the apartment above the Domino's Pizza where I started working at fourteen uh, or fifteen or so, and. Um, a lot of really hardcore stuff happened when I was a kid. Like I experienced uh, child sexual abuse from my stepdad, from my actual dad. He was, you know, in and out of jail. There was some domestic violence stuff going on. Um, he eventually became homeless. So a lot of like really heavy stuff going going on in my life, like well before the age of, of 18 or even 15 or even 10. 
Um, so that also was like pretty hardcore to go through, but at the same time, I was coping with a lot of that by getting really involved in school. So I was a super keener, straight A student involved in a million clubs and teams kind of person. And I think that spirit eventually led me into engineering because it was also the influence of my mom encouraging me, classic brown parents, like, you know, take take the maths, take the sciences, like do all of that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I eventually just kind of fell into it through grade 12, decided to apply and uh, the rest is history. I went to McMaster, got a degree and uh, been an engineer ever since. When you were uh, like a child going through these difficult times, how much of this did you share with friends? I, I guess people, even I guess outside of your like mom, like how, how like who did, did you share this with a lot of people? Yeah. So a lot of the stuff wasn't even shared with my mom. Like some of the more, oh, wow. more intense stuff I was just sharing, like the stuff that was going on with my dad was like the whole family was aware of it. And we were all kind of going through it together. But the stuff with my stepdad was more one-on-one and uh, I actually was silent about that stuff for for 10 years Um, so it wasn't until I was like 20 that I told my sister and then eventually told my mom and eventually they they separated did the whole court case pled guilty etc so that whole thing went down way later but in terms of like me and my friends just throughout school like everyone knew I had a a harder life like again poor brown kid in a rich white neighborhood that alone was like okay you're you're in a different situation um but I think it was a lot more about that kind of stuff than necessarily knowing the more intense things happening within the household was just more like what people saw on the outside how did you guys end up in Lee's side where I'm just curious because I mean I guess most town people there's like, you know, certain pockets that people kind of really concentrated. Obviously, Scarborough's one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple spots in downtown, I think St. Jamestown. Mm-hmm. And then I think also, um, I forgot the other neighborhood. So how did you guys end up in Leaside? Yeah, so I mean, like, we grew up, I was like, born, quote unquote, on the uh, on the Danforth. That's where we were kind of in the East End. Um, my grandparents, who were actually living in a Tamil co-op when I was growing up, were right at like Lansdowne and, and Bloor. Bloor. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I, t- I had another guest on the podcast and she grew up in that Tamil co-op. In that co-op. Absolutely. No way. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. I was there like all the time, like most weekends. And it's still a little surreal. The second you walk out of Lansdowne station, it's like right there. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is my whole childhood. Um, but no, I think we just ended up in Leaside because my mom was a social worker. So she was um, her job would kind of move around Toronto periodically if when she got re- uh, located to different offices. And there was an office at, at Young and Eglinton. So we moved to Bayview and Eglinton, essentially. And um, honestly, like Tamil community in within my own household wasn't like that emphasized to be to be frank, it was it was a lot of like our family, like my my grandma, my grandpa, my two aunts, um, and my mom, like, that was a strong Tamil influence as well as like extended cousins. Cause both my grandparents were, who were both Sri Lankan on, on that side. Um, both of them were one of seven siblings. So there was like a batrillion cousins <laughs> <laughs> also classic. Um, so there was definitely like extended family things and whatever, but 
uh, like my, my, uh, my family wasn't really speaking Tamil anymore. My grandparents would always have TVI on like the Tamil vision network or something. Um, so there was like extended Tamil influence, but uh, it wasn't, it, we, the focus was like the, the, the quote unquote, like racism and stuff I experienced at my school just being mixed race was like a trillion times more for my darker skinned mom and her siblings when they came to Canada, when they were in their young teens. So the, you ask my mom where she's from, she'll say Canada or like, not where she's from. Like, like what's your background? She'll say Canadian. Like, so there was a lot of really strong focus on like being Canadian and like being sort of that, that first or second generation of like, we're, we're here now kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, like, going through what you did because i know people that have gone through that as well and the tamil community there's a lot of things i mean there's more education and awareness around things like sexual abuse mental mm. like health um and just like a host of other topics that previously i think it was people are just uncomfortable talking about or they weren't mm -hmm. educated or yeah around how to talk about it so when you were going through that and like you know the family discovered what happened or even maybe your extended family um how how did they deal with it was it just like yeah i'm just curious like how they dealt with it was it did they did you get any blame for it or was this like did, did they understand like the situation in hand and how did they support you through it as well after the fact yeah no very valid questions um so everything went down when i was like nine ish and uh did the, no one found out about it until i was like 20 so it had been a really long time the unfortunate thing was like we lived with my stepdad and he was married to my mom for a solid decade or so of that time in between so because all of this was sort of happening behind the scenes in silence with my mom and aunts and stuff finding out i think it was just so much shock of like this person who they all knew and spent tons of time with and like loved for lack of a better word been that you know it was sort of like an ignorance is bliss situation they just didn't know what was happening um so they of course were like devastated they were upset that they weren't able to have helped me when i was younger like of course it's unfortunate that i wasn't feeling comfortable to share that earlier to deal with it earlier um but no they were definitely not blaming or absolutely anything like that i think it was more just like being mortified that this thing went down um and uh yeah no they've always been very supportive and continue to be to this day okay no i mean thank you for sharing that uh even for families i think when you hear about things like this it's always at a distance or like in the news and you just never think it'll happen to you so when it does happen within your family i imagine like it's a lot of shock and obviously um a challenging thing to kind of work through uh, even maybe to this day as well um, definitely <laughs> you know i think before we connected on the podcast you know there was a story uh, you mentioned kind of or shared a story about your grandfather paul um and you know it seemed like there was um his life story and kind of the work that he did made an impact on you so maybe share a bit about that for for the audience's benefit in terms of who he is kind of the work he did and why um his life made a, such a, a big or had such an influence on you yeah definitely so this episode is sponsored by nobody that's right nobody so if you could be kind enough to hit that subscribe button that would mean a lot to me
you know, for context in Sri Lanka, like my mom was born in Badula, but lived in Colombo. And there was some, like a lot of movement within Sri Lanka at different times because my grandpa um, was involved in a lot of kind of like diplomatic type stuff. So they moved to Canada in, in the 70s. So before the war and stuff was going on in Sri Lanka. And the intention of their move was really to give a strong education to my mom and her two sisters. But then my grandparents went back to Sri Lanka in the early 80s to basically lead an orphanage um, in the eastern side of Sri Lanka. So while they were there, my grandpa became the president of the uh, Citizens Council for National Harmony, or the CCNH. And this was an organization that as things were starting to kick off with everything going on, it, it was, I mean, as the description says, they were just trying to, to create national harmony in, in amongst all the chaos. So in his role and with leading the orphanage and everything and his, his more kind of diplomatic um, background, essentially people would come to him for information of what was going on with Tamil people, what, what, they were report issues. They would like, he was kind of like this mediator essentially of information. Um, and in, in, he had a knowledge of many languages. Like I think, I believe he spoke Tamil, Singlings and English. So his ability to kind of flex to different people within the country was unique. And, um, long story short in this journey, um, in the, in 85, there was a, massacre of Tamil Tamil boys near him that he became aware of and you know the timeline was very like back to back within days but there was like one massacre that happened and then there was reports of a second one um and so he had a list of 23 boys that were allegedly murdered and he basically went on this like really hardcore physical investigation to try to find the truth of where were they were they okay is this real and he he literally was confronted with the gravesite and had proof that that they were in fact murdered so he was heavily involved in kind of speaking out about this and and trying to report this to the police and and there were this was also being reported to foreign journalists and things like this. Um, so in amongst all this investigation about these murdered boys, um, he was taken into custody by the by the government and he ended up being imprisoned for 122 days um, under claims of like spreading false information essentially. Uh, most of this time spent in a 12 by six inch or 12 foot by six foot cell. Um, so just like absolutely wild and and he was just advocating for like literally putting his life on the line for these Tamil boys that were murdered and uh, what it was representative of at this time and uh, Amnesty International eventually got involved in order to help him get acquitted and to to deal with the the horrific crimes that were going on and speak out about it internationally so you know, he just clearly embodied like fighting for human rights to a whole other magnitude than than a lot of people and uh, just really instilled this sense of like 
obligation to society and volunteering and passion and standing up for the little guy uh, in my family, I would say. Wow, what a story. He, he yeah. seems like a remarkable man. Is he still alive? No, so he passed away in, uh, he was he was about 88 years old, I think, in uh, 2014. So. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Sounds you. like he had a life well lived. Definitely. No, he's a absolutely amazing, amazing person. Like just did. I mean, you're already a great guy when you're running an orphanage, but mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Took, took things to a whole other level. Well, we talked about a lot of deep stuff. So now we'll move into mm -hmm. maybe things uh, uh, to lighten up the mood, but you on the engineering side. So obviously mm -hmm. being an engineer is a big component of your identity. I, I'm a, I know maybe not a lot of people know spin, Ma like the company spin master is, mm -hmm. but I, I've always been like a big fan of the company. I'm a fellow engineer. So like I've heard awesome. of them. And so how did you, how did the opportunity with spin master come about and like, what got you particularly excited about working there? Yeah. Great question. So, um, Throughout university uh, at McMaster, I did a degree in materials engineering and management. So it was a five-year program of just academics alone. And I also spent 28 months throughout my journey um, doing internships and co-ops. So that was, it totaled my degree to six years, but worth every second. Um, and in that time, I ended up working in manufacturing a lot. Uh, so I worked at Pepsi foods and beverages manufacturing. So where they make like oatmeal and Gatorade and things like that. And uh, I also worked at Bombardier Aerospace. So I got to be on site in the Toronto Downsview location where like 4,000 people work to manufacture literal airplanes. So those experiences just got me really energized about manufacturing. But in growing up in Toronto, I just really wanted to be back home. And a lot of manufacturing stuff can often be in like you know more rural areas or at minimum like suburbs kind of thing but growing up essentially downtown toronto or midtown toronto i i really wanted that more like big city life for my post uni young adult you know section of my life and uh i was literally just on indeed hunting for jobs and found a spin master ad and uh, or job posting or whatever and you know how in job postings, they have like that about the company values thing. And you usually just like skip down to the qualifications. Like, do I qualify for this job? What is it? For some reason, I just randomly read it. And it was this really weird feeling of like, wow, I feel like I just read a description of myself in, in a company. Because it was all about like entrepreneurial spirit and like doing whatever it takes and like no BS and we're innovative. We like, we're creative. We want to have fun. Like it was just all this stuff. And then the job itself was about like, you know, developing products in global manufacturing sites. And uh, anyways, it just sounded super interesting. So I um, applied for the role in the product development engineering, um, like part of the company, which they essentially hire four new grads and uh, you go on like a rotational program to three different parts of the company. And so I did product development engineering. I did supply chain um, inventory management and I did uh, indirect procurement and logistics. And uh, it was fantastic. I really loved it. That was the first year and a half at Spin. And then I settled full time into product development. So over the last two and a half years, I've uh, been responsible for everything from board games to teddy bears to remote controlled cars, flying fairies, 
purses that blink, kinetic sand, mm-hmm. Rubik's cubes, etch sketches, whatever you can think of. I've touched it in some way somehow over the last few years, and uh, it's been just a wild and phenomenal journey of product development and manufacturing globally and uh, making a lot of kids happy. Sounds like you kind of get to be the Willy Wonka for toys. <laughs> yeah, it's very like Santa elf vibes, you know. <laughs> it, I can, everything you described in that job sounds super fun. Um, is there anything that is a downside or like not, you know, not so fun that comes with the territory of a mostly fun job that, you know, somebody looking on the outside in wouldn't consider? Yeah, I mean, I think the difficult thing to manage is essentially the volatility um like there's a lot of repivoting restructuring uh like the play pattern's not sophisticated enough walmart needs this new change oh there's this opportunity with this licensor like chase 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 like we're very entrepreneurial in spirit and it's a very like anything is possible kind of environment um which is really hardcore it's like the the workload's intense the the day-to-day is intense And you might think like at surface level, like, oh, like you're making toys, like it's got to be jokes. Like it's, it's a week at spin feels like a month, like usually. (laughs) So (laughs) there's just like a lot that happens at any given time. Um, And I think, you know, I really thrive in that kind of environment. And I think some people find it like complete chaos and madness. (laughs) So it really depends on your personality. So with product development, I mean, there's a whole area. Is there like, I guess, what does your day to day like typically look like? Mm-hmm. I know it might be different, but could you describe what it could, you know, at a high level, what that looks like? For sure. So I work with a, a very, very cross-functional team of a few other engineers that are responsible for quality or uh, mechanical design or manufacturing. But then I work with a lot of non-engineers as well. So people who work on our packaging or do our marketing, do our industrial design. Um, It's like a lot of different skill sets and completely different careers. And we basically all work together throughout um, a set product development process. And we literally work to bring these like sketches and ideas to be manufacturable in the hundreds of thousands of units and shipped all over the world. So um, what that can look like on a day-to-day is really depends where the product is in that development cycle. But some days you're looking at concepts and you're just trying to look at prelim costing on that. Other days you have prototypes in your hand and you're trying to assess opportunities to improve the product. Um, Other days you're working on global sourcing strategy and understanding should you be working in manufacturing this product in Mexico or France or, or, or China? Like, where does it make the most sense? You are looking at the packaging one day. You're, in my case, I'm leading the sustainability committee. So we're trying to understand, like, what are alternatives to our plastic usage? Um, there's just, like, all sorts of technical challenges, uh, people-based challenges, and uh, just really trying to collaboratively work together to get these products on shelf. 
Sounds like there's like a ton of learning opportunities. And I guess since you're relatively earlier in your career, that's a great place to be. Definitely. Yeah, it's it's surreal having hit my four year it's been and uh, starting to enter like I now have like a couple direct reports and getting more exposed to leadership stuff, which is really exciting. And uh, yeah, the sky's the limit for what could come next for sure. Amazing. Now to kind of move on to NG Queers, which is a great name, by the way. <laughs> um, so you started this. Why did you start this and how did you come up with the name? Yeah, so when I was in first year university, so I haven't even, I don't think I've even mentioned it yet, but I am a queer person. I um, just generally identify as queer, but essentially I'm bisexual, if you will. Um, sometimes go as pansexual, but it's a more complicated definition these days. So bi is fine. Um, Could you explain pansexual to someone yeah. that's naive like me? So the nuanced difference between pan and bi is that a bisexual person is attracted to people of different genders, whereas a pansexual person essentially almost doesn't see gender or like gender is not relevant in a decision criteria of who they're going to date. So like a, a bi person is more likely to be like, oh, I like guys, girls, trans folks, whatever. A pan person is like, who I like are that you person. as a person? I like Got people. It. Yeah, that's so the... The difference is kind of nuanced, honestly, but um, yeah, by by works as well. So yeah, I've known that about myself since I was about sixteen years old, and back to this, you know, area I was growing up in. It was not only white and uh, rich; it was also very straight. Um, so there were like count on one hand the number of gay kids at the, the high school and they were like actively made fun of kind of situation back then this is like 2012 um so when i got to university did you know that every time you left a five out of five review for this podcast a tamil parent lets their child pursue a career in the creative arts okay that's probably not true but if there's a chance that it is do you really want to jinx it leave a review do it for the young creative in you you know, you hear all these like stereotypes about university, like, oh, everyone's like experimenting and da, da 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 da. Like, I was really looking forward to finding that queer community and being able to like live that. Cause I mean, obviously, I grew up in Toronto, like, there were queer people around. It was just, you know, you're not in bars and stuff yet when you're like growing up. It's hard to like just meet these people that exist in theory, you know? Um, so, university was supposed to kind of fulfill that for me. And uh, it just really wasn't the vibe at that time it was in my 4,000 uh person university undergrad there were like again just like a handful of openly queer people um we did have queer services on campus but they were for like if you got kicked out of your house yesterday please come here for emotional support it wasn't like let's bond and be friends um so essentially uh I was well I went to the Toronto Pride Parade with a few engineering friends and uh, we saw these groups marching in the Toronto Pride Parade with like 30, 50 people each. And they were engineering schools marching in the Toronto Pride Parade, not even like the university, like the engineering departments um, and did some research. And at the time, there were two organizations that existed or two or three that were like LGBTQ engineering resources. And the word and queers had been kind of used against me as an insult in first year. Someone was like, oh, you like effing and queer. And I was like, 
that's a cool word. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Um, I was like, that's a pretty cool word. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's very well suited. Um, so essentially I got interested in starting the group almost selfishly from a, like, I want to make queer friends way. And as the years went on, that was second year university. By the time I was in my final year, sixth year, I was running the nationally non-for-profit corporation, Enterprise Canada. So in that time from second to sixth year, we essentially like at McMaster expanded not only to social connection, but people started asking us like, hey, can you like lead a session with my fraternity explaining like what are these language what's the difference between trans the way you even just asked but like by versus pan those types of questions but even with like trans stuff and and uh like you know everything pronouns whatever like all these types of things were being asked so we were kind of being viewed as a resource so this eventually as well as like you know engineering as you know is a profession and there's a lot of like nuance on what is the profession of engineering and how do you develop in it so all of this turned into the three pillars of the organization, which were social connection, education and advocacy, and professional development. So there's a whole bunch of services that EQ now does outside of just, you know, having parties and uh, like events for different types of people. Uh, we now also do a lot of training services, run uh, fundraising campaigns, and at through those trainings it started just at mcmaster then we started going to like an ontario-wide conference or a canada-wide conference delivering similar content but that with this audience that was bigger you know i would leave a talk and people would be like oh hey i'm from western university can you write a letter to my dean explaining why i need an edge queers group hey i'm from ubc i want to start this group how do i write a constitution for my club and these schools were just asking like the same questions kind of again and again literally just started a Facebook group at the time, had a couple surveys with, it was about five to 10 organizations at that time. And once we had a couple partnerships and got our nonprofit status, we expanded to over 30 universities across the country. And in my final year of school, I was traveling all over Canada to visit ver visit various conferences, talk about queers, provide services, and uh, really just like create this community of queer inclusion not only within queer people themselves, but also just people understanding why queer inclusion and allyship is important so that people can feel themselves and be themselves. And uh, at the time, also diversity and inclusion services were very limited. So we were also providing a lot of intersectional approaches of like, I am a queer woman of color. So let's talk about sexism. Let's talk about uh, racism let's talk about ableism even like I, I have uh, significant mental challenges from all the things I was describing earlier about um, I have something called complex PTSD or CPTSD which presents in the brain very similarly to like ADHD or anxiety and depression so I can empathize with a lot of different mental health struggles so just almost explicitly through my lived experience and a lot of research we were able to create content about these systems of oppression and educate on microaggressions and all these different diversity and inclusion based topics. And, uh, you know, in a post pandemic world, EQ is still, still out and about. They've definitely had some challenges through the, uh, through the pandemic, of course, but still kick in. I think there's like, they're on their like fourth or fifth president of Edge Queers Canada since I left, which is great. And, uh, now I kind of just have 
founder status essentially and just you know help out where i can do a lot of these kind of speaking engagement things so when you say you founded it was it like you started the organization and <clears throat> based on all the services and things that you provided it sounds like there's a lot of resourcing required so how did you go about getting funding or resourcing to kind of help do all this work or were you just like a one person show just yeah, yeah no definitely not a one person show um i did uh have someone who was helping out a ton that I eventually was like, Dow, you're like, you're a co-founder. Um, so the, I would kind of do a lot of the front end stuff of the being the person doing the talks, making the presentations, getting the networking, the resourcing, the, um, the partnerships and going to the conferences. And then my co-founder Dow, he was doing more of the, the budget, the incorporation status exploration writing out our very thorough constitution um so more of that kind of like behind the scenes kind of stuff that is all very technical and things that i was not excelling at at the time so but in terms of actual money uh like 99 percent of eq is uh, volunteer so it was just a lot of time uh, I probably was spending about 20 hours a week on EQ stuff throughout most of my undergrad, but it was 10 to 20 hours, probably exaggerated. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it was, uh, it never really felt like work necessarily. I was just so passionate about it and it just kept growing to be bigger and bigger and bigger and needed more stuff and needed new things. And people were also coming out to me left, right and center. I'm queer, I'm bi, I'm trans, like, the service was just so needed and so this is in an in an era where like people would basically still be saying that's so gay like it was this is well well pre-woke gen z's so um you know was really really necessary at the time we were filling a big gap but uh from a funding standpoint it was a lot of just like creating these partnerships and through networking at a lot of these conferences and getting invited to, to these, do these different talks in front of like all the deans of engineering of Canada or like presidents of universities and uh, NSERC and engineering regulatory bodies, like all these different kind of overseers of, of different facets of the profession of engineering and uh, basically asking for their help. So you created this organization that has managed to survive, which is ideal, like just like if you create a company or organization that you kind of spawned it off, it did a lot of good, still doing a lot of good, but now you don't have to kind of be involved day to day. What kind of impact do you like? I know you're on the, I think the board of directors now, so not like day to day, but like helping where you can. Uh, what kind of impact are you seeing the organization now make? And, you know, as you kind of watch from afar and. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is it, it, I think it has done made revolutionary impact to the culture of engineering, which I think is sort of difficult to have like metrics and KPIs on. Um, but if you walk into most engineering schools across the country and you look at their first years, if they are queer, they are likely much, much more likely to be comfortable being out and being who they, who they are with an environment of the second, third and fourth year students feeling more welcoming towards those students, as well as maybe having more knowledge and understanding. So just like an overall more supportive environment. And I think there's way less people that feel obligated to be closeted the way that they used to. 
And I also think that there is support of them like explicitly joining their EQ groups at, their, at these different schools. Um, I think that the profession itself, like outside of universities, have also learned a lot from EQ through some of these trainings and services they provide on EDI services. At the end of the day, though, in a post-George Floyd era, people care a lot about diversity and inclusion in a way that when I was standing in front of audiences in 2014 talking about this stuff, people just were like, is racism real? Sure. Like, <laughs> um, in a way that they're like, oh, no, yeah, yeah, it's it's a problem. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that EQ's just done a lot of, uh, made a lot of progress culturally in the, in the movement. So you mentioned that you were queer and in the Tamil community, I mean, I think there's more and more people kind of coming out and again, being who they want to be instead of hiding it. Mm -hmm. uh, when you came out to your family, or I guess your friends or whoever you came out to first, what was kind of the reaction? Because like you said, at that time, it was not the same environment or climate as it is now where people are a bit more aware of these things. How did your mom take it? How did your family take it? Yeah, I mean, my mom, <laughs> have you ever heard of the card game Euchre? Uh, I think so, but I have no idea how it's played it's in. It's basically this like, I don't know, it's just a card game. But in order to play the card game, you need to have uh, two teams of two. So it's like a four person game. And it's really easy to have like tournaments and stuff. So the I always joke the underground euchre scene in Toronto is uh, veterans and gay bars. Mm -hmm. So my mom is a euchre card shark. And uh, <laughs> she's been playing in these gay bars playing this card game since I was born, essentially. So she was very exposed to the queer community through just living in Toronto, playing her favorite game, her card game, <laughs> with all these uh, queer people that uh, when I came out to her when I was 16, you know, she was very chill about it. She was just like, oh, okay. Like, I don't think she necessarily knew or suspected. She wasn't really sure what it meant for the future. Me also being bi, like I've had a lot of male partners as well. So, you know, when I did have girlfriends and stuff, it was kind of her just being like, okay, well, like, six of one half a dozen of the other kind of thing but she was always very relaxed about it all and uh, I would say even the rest of my family was also very supportive and has never said anything very weird honestly I think me being queer was one thing but I was also like polyamorous during a time in university which means I had like two boyfriends and I was actively bringing them both home my grandpa definitely met both of them like <laughs> the, my grandpa Paul so I was kind of just like a bit of a, a wild, <laughs> uh, like free love kind of person. And uh, yeah, my family was always really supportive of it because I was just very confident and comfortable with myself that it was sort of a like accept me or leave me kind of situation. Where do you think that confidence comes from? Good question. Um, I think in some ways a survival tactic. Like I, as I said, was going through some really hard stuff inside the walls of my home as a kid. and. The way that I dealt with it was through getting really, really involved in school. So I was literally leading like 10 clubs when I was 12 years old. Like I was in band and I was on student council and I was like creating a club and did it like running like newspaper, whatever you can name it. I was on it. I think I was getting a lot of validation and like just learning a lot, frankly, of different, completely different groups of people, different skills, whatever, because I was just involved in so many different things that I think I just got a lot of positive reinforcement and validation through that. I think that kind of confidence in myself was just like, I don't want to say that I was taking care of myself because that's an exaggeration, but 
because I was living in silence from parts of what I was going through, like there was an element of me needing to like nurture myself in certain ways. So I think that did give me that attitude of like, I'm not gonna take shit from people essentially. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm still a people pleaser and like care about being popular and whatever, whatever. But I think in terms of, I think I just had hard lines, especially when it came to sexuality, because growing up in Toronto, like it was just so normal that there's like some people are straight and some people are gay. The end. Like (laughs) it was just always that simple for me growing up that I to this day struggle to understand why people have such a problem with queerness. Mm. Like it just feels almost like illogical to me for people to care, let alone care a lot. You know what I mean? So I think there's insecurity. I think when I when I see somebody get upset at something, it's usually something internal, not external. Um, so and I guess I guess another question, I guess, about your childhood as well as you're kind of talking. Money can be hard to come by, but here is a hundred dollar opportunity for you. Join my free newsletter for free exclusive content and a free chance to win $100 when I hold special draws. Did I mention that it's free? Was there anything that you think at that time could have changed your willingness or openness to kind of talk about what was happening to you? Um, Like, was there like a sign or signal, something that could have changed how open or like um, how much sooner things could have been discovered or, um, or, or just things played out as they should have played out, I guess? I think about that a lot, honestly, because there wasn't really an explicit reason that I was quiet. It was, to be honest with you, I was told by this man who was someone I loved in a position of authority, aka a father figure in my life. um, He told me not to tell anyone. So I think at the age of nine, that's all it really took for me to be like, okay, like you said, no, tell anyone. So I won't tell anyone. But I remember like, I used to just lie so much when I was a kid, like but all a variety of different things. And um, like really, really young, like less than 10. And I like hit this point of like, no, I'm going to be honest about absolutely everything all the time, maybe around 12 or something with this one exception of like silence. And for me coming forward about everything was just so liberating because I just really wanted and needed to like be able to tell my full truth because you know I was out I was queer I was doing all these things and then there was just this one very big gap in honesty that was missing when I really think back of the story there's not something very explicit that kept me from saying anything and there also wasn't necessarily something that explicit that made me talk as well it was uh really just like one friend who I confided in in very very early university and I told her what had happened and she was like so are you like going to the police are you like are you talking mom like what da, 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 da. and I was like yeah I mean you're not wrong probably should do those things <laughs> like it was sort of that situation um but it even still after that took me like two whole years before I did anything it's just like it's just hard when uh, I also was aware of um law that makes sense but is stupid for kids to be aware of but uh like the basic basically one of the only things you can't tell your therapist that they like will keep in confidence is specifically child abuse so i've i learned about that rule when i was like 10 or 11 so this thing had happened to me but i knew that the second i came forward about it like cops would be involved child services would be involved like the next day my mom would find out and i was just like not 
ready to confront that. So like, I, I also didn't go to therapy during that whole time. Like I only started going to therapy in like second year university or so. So um, probably messed myself up a little bit more <laughs> than I needed to through all of that. But at the same time, I like the court case ended by the time I was like maybe 23 ish, 22, 23. So sorry, can you, sorry, I've lost tra- my track. No, no, now. that's okay. <laughs> no, I, I was just, it was more so just like uh, as you were talking, I was just, I think you answered it already. Mm, okay, um, cool. It's like that curiosity is more so from like a perspective now of me as a parent, just understanding, you know. Mm. um along the way you know could something have changed kind of the trajectory of kind of what you mm. have to kind of go through um so no i think you answered that if you had a chance to go visit your 16 year old self go back in a time machine with all that you know what would you tell her yeah i love this question but it's also <laughs> really intense um just because 16 was was a particularly difficult year for me a lot had been going on with my dad a lot I was still actively living with my stepdad. Um, I was rebelling in a lot of ways while also getting strictly straight A's because that was always the non-negotiable in my life was great. And uh, I was explicitly suicidal at 16. So I think what I would tell myself then is that I don't think I even had the language at that time to understand how complicated my life was. So I think I would have told told her it's okay that you live in this world of these cookie cutter perfect lives around you and yours is zero percent that um it's okay that that you're going through all of these confusing emotions and complex things and you're being so impacted by every little thing that's happening in your life because you're hormonal and there's pressures and boys and like and girls and so much happening mm-hmm. um and uh i would just say to to hang in there to be more honest um to know that you are special and you've made it this far so you will you will keep making it through more hard stuff and uh that it's going it's all going to be okay and one day you're going to do some really really cool things and you're going to help a lot of people and you're gonna you're gonna make people happy in your job and uh it's all gonna be okay it's a great message um (laughs) I guess looking forward in terms of your personal legacy, how would you want to be remembered by your friends and family? Um, I just, I just want to have left this world having done some good. I think that nobody is perfect, and when you have a journey like mine, there's obviously hiccups, and you don't have enough complex understanding of yourself, and you make mistakes, and you regret a lot of things that you did and went through. But I just want people to remember, I don't want to be remembered as some like perfect, whatever, whatever. I just think that I just want people to have positive memories associated with the good things that I did do and know that, know that I was always doing my best. Well, that's a good way to segue into the final part of the podcast, a bit more upbeat. Uh, it's a fun speed round that I like to call Creator Confessions. I'm going to say a bunch of statements and you tell me the first thing that pops to mind. Ready, Vanessa? Yes. Awesome. Favorite Tamil food? Oh, biryani. Uh, something that scares you? Rejection. Insecurity you have? Uh, my weight. <laughs> Favorite TV show you're watching? Oh, the OC. Uh, place you're itching to travel to? Sri Lanka. <laughs> A uh, fellow Tamil creator you want to give a shout out to? MIA. 
Uh, favorite childhood memory? Geeking out about Harry Potter with my best friends. Um, something you like to do for fun outside of work? Soccer. Favorite movie of all time? Oh, my gosh. Uh, uh, Finding Nemo. <laughs> A purchase you've splurged on in the last few years that you have no regret about? My Aeroplan credit card. <laughs> <laughs> uh, pet peeve? People who are impatient. Um, a person or celebrity that you look up to? Mindy Kaling. Um, if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, a regret that you would have? Ah, these are hardcore. Not having traveled the world enough. Uh, a celebrity whose life you'd want to experience for one day? John Green. A book you've read or a podcast you've listened to that's had an impact on you? Michelle Obama becoming. A belief, behavior, or habit that's improved your life? Change is the only constant. That's like so funny. That's like my statement that I make everywhere, like my LinkedIn profile. Is it? It's yeah. me too. It's on my books here. Like yeah. one vibe. <laughs> <laughs> and you said favorite Tamil food biryani. My favorite is mutton biryani. Oh, uh, 12 out of 10. <laughs> and finally, a piece of advice that you'd give to your aspiring fellow Tamil creators out there. Just do one step at a time. One email, one initiative, one day. That will turn into more. I promise. Great messaging. Well, uh, Vanessa, that was a great podcast. I mean, a great episode. Thank you for having such a courageous, honest conversation. Um, for you know somebody that listens to this conversation and you know they're inspired or they just really resonated with the story somehow and they want to reach out to you, what is the best way for someone to do that? Yeah, definitely. Um, you can hit me up on Instagram um, at Vanessa Kelverpony. I have a YouTube channel, Vanessa Keller Pony, uh, or on LinkedIn, Vanessa Keller Pony. So any of those would be great. Awesome. Well, thank you again for jumping on and making time. And for you, the audience, appreciate you guys listening as always. Look forward to the next episode. Definitely. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.